This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Hello and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. In the mix tonight, well, we're taking you around the world. Man Booker award-winning novelist Anne Enright speaks out on literary culture and how high-profile literary awards and reviews are generally centred on men. For sure you can say that men are better at being important than women and men writers are better at being important than female writers. There is also a kind of cult of importance around certain publications and it just seems that the literary culture is very skewed towards the male and continues to be skewed towards the male, even though the readership is overwhelmingly female. So if there is a line to walk, if there is a trick to be tricked, it is to write something that has the credibility of a male readership, but the actual (laughs) reality of a female readership. I meet up with Somalian writer and commentator Narudi Farhan and hear about present-day Somalia and how his country and its beautiful people are struggling to survive with the vicious cycles of poverty, violence and corruption that plague their country. And inspirational social justice campaigner Father Peter McVerry tells me why the Bible is one of the most misinterpreted books in history. I think there is an extraordinary vision in the Gospels that we have lost because they're extraordinarily radical. They're trying to tell us about how we should live together as a community. Therefore, they have become, for an awful lot of people, totally irrelevant, very boring, and I think that's our fault. But first... Anne Enright is one of Ireland's most celebrated and loved writers. Her engrossing books explore the complications in family relationships and themes of love, adultery and betrayal. In 2007, Anne's captivating book, The Gathering, won the Man Booker Prize and pirouetted her onto the international literary stage. Apart from her popular four novels, Anne has published a variety of essays, short stories and a hugely entertaining non-fiction book about the life of the great and very crazy Eliza Lynch. Well, it was great to meet up with Anne this summer while she was on holiday in West Cork. We started off by chatting about the job of a writer. John McGahern said the job of the writer is to look after their sentences. The longer you sit at the desk, the more sense that kind of makes. The job of the writer at the first instance is to make sure that what they're writing is right in some perfect way, in in some way that's hard to describe. The job of the writer is to write well. And I find if you spend a lot of time fretting about the very small business of writing, the commas, the semicolons, the colons, the endless kind of taking them out and putting them back in again, that if you distract yourself enough a process then something unrepeatable can happen on the page it only happens if you're busy looking elsewhere I suppose the job of the writer is to not know what they're doing on some level you said recently that you're not scared of failure but of success and that you fail every day obviously in terms of as a writer you're writing sentences rehashing scenarios with characters how self-critical of your writing can you get 
if you're too self-critical or too anxious about the process, then of course you'll stall and stop and you'll be in the middle of a writer's block and you'll have your hand pressed to your forehead and you'll have to go for long walks and you'll be an annoyance to your family and everyone around you. I actually don't do writer's block. It's not one of my feature sort of moods. A lot of writing is about mood management, actually, about saying, listen, you feel this is brilliant, you feel this is awful. In fact, this is just what it is. In 10 years' time, you might look at it and say, God, I used to be able to write. Where's it all gone? You know, you think it's awful at the time. It's a mood swing city. You know, you go through so many different feelings about what you're writing, what you're producing. Is it any good? Is it hitting the mark? Is there something better? There's always something better in your head. There's always something unreachably good in your head. So you're always missing that mark. And you just have to put up with that, that you're not running the four-minute mile. You're running 3.58. And that's your time for the rest of your natural. So yes, you have to be self-critical, but in a way that doesn't sabotage yourself. There are many tricks to it, but I think the first phase of writing is a kind of flow, a creative flow, where you write out, and then you look at it, and then you edit it. Then once it's out there, you work it really hard. And you've had some remarkable characters in your books, The Pleasures of Eliza Lynch. Eliza Lynch is a tremendously fascinating character in history. What was that like, presenting her and presenting a fictitious account of her life in your book? It is a very highly fictitious account of her life. More research has been done since I wrote that book, and so various inaccuracies have been altered. I loved Eliza at the time because there were only four books written about her in English. She was an Irish woman from County Cork. She became the partner of Francisco Solano Lopez, who was a dictator in Paraguay, who launched his country into a disastrous war against three surrounding countries. And... For me, though, Eliza was my boom book, you know. She was in the demi-monde of Paris in 1854, and then she made a long journey to Paraguay, up the river to Asuncion. And she lived a life, in my book, of great consumption. And one of her greatest talents was for shipping, you know, French gowns. I love that feeling of great opulence in the jungle. You get it in Marquez, you get it in some German art movies, the feeling of opulence and decay both at the same time. And Eliza is an interesting character in the book because it's hard to judge her in ways and it's hard not to like her in ways. And some of your other characters like Gina in your latest book, there's such complexities to them. How important is it as a writer to write likeable characters? And is there a pressure to write likeable characters? None of my women characters are any better than they should be. And I think I was pushing initially against this idea that women are either beautiful, serene, lovely and nurturing or viragos or, you know, witches. Mm-hmm. Of some, so I was pushing against the fairy tale idea of women. And I was going for real women, women that I would know that I could live beside, women I would have known at school. School. I mean, not directly, but women that you could meet in a bar in Dublin or wherever and have an interesting conversation with. But these are people with contradictions, with depths, with needs, desires and systems of morality that you might not necessarily agree with. It's the idea that all Irish women are really nice, lovely people is a beautiful one and a charming one, but it may not necessarily be the truest one. I wanted my women to be just as good or bad as men are allowed to be in fiction. So Gina in The Forgotten Walls, she'd be really good company. You'd have a great night out with her. You wouldn't necessarily introduce her to your husband because that would be her little weakness, I think, the husband thing. Well, she certainly isn't boring and that makes her such a memorable character. What was it like writing about the boom and knowing what we've learned today and then presenting the grey areas, the lack of moralities, as you said, the consumption, the greed, the lust, the betrayals? 
Well, The Forgotten Walls was written in February 2009, so it was started like six months after the crash, after the bank guarantees, after Lehman Brothers collapsed. And it was written during that long fall where nobody knew where we were. I found it intensely poignant, melancholy kind of time where we just didn't know where the economy or the country was going to land. I mean, it was a crash, but it hadn't hit bottom. There was no sound of smashing glass just yet. And I finished the book as the IMF walked in the door in November 2010 and I just thought well now we know where the bottom is okay this is where we are and the book is set on a day of snow because I looked out the window there were three years of snow as I was writing that book but I looked out on February the 6th in 2009 I looked out the country made beautiful after chaos Eamon Dunphy was crying for Ireland on telly people were shouting there was a lot of uncertainty and then the snow came and the place ground to a halt and it was just such a moment of blessedness and beauty that I thought this is where Gina will look back at the hectic affair that she had with Sean Vallely. And greed is a big theme in the book and tremendous amounts of consumption. Can we talk about the character of Connor, Gina's husband? There's a very interesting scene in the book when he smells and feels the money when he's in his new house. Can you tell me about this? And what has been the reaction to this? Because we all felt it to some degree. I don't write satire. I mean, my characters, I don't judge them in that way. I don't say, oh, they're so vulgar. I was reared not to judge people by what they had. So I wasn't going to start laughing at people for being rich instead of laughing at them for being poor. Gina's sister lives out in Enniskerry and she's always getting new tiles on her kitchen floor because the old tiles are wrong. She spends more time with her plumber than she does with her husband. Her husband works all the hours that God gives. And I just thought this was accurate to the time. And Connor, Gina's husband, sits in this little place they've bought for 300 grand in Klonsky and he says, listen, listen to the money. Like the house is going up by 75 euros a day. And he says, you know, the toaster would pop out fivers. And that feeling of vertigo, like the elevator going up, you don't know if it stops at the top or not. Like, do you fall out? What, what happens? Gina says, and we were terrified. Don't tell me otherwise. And I do think people were frightened as well as delighted and terrified as well as grabby because of this feeling of being in a runaway thing you know, a car, a train. <laughs> the feeling of running away was quite interesting and panicky in the last few years of the boom. And it almost has, uh, money has a magical quality and then in other ways, how it destroys. Well, money is a very magical and interesting substance. And I like to put money in my books. I'm a bit like Jane Austen in that way. I'm really interested in people's secret and intimate relationship with money. A psychoanalyst called Adam Phillips was in Dublin talking. He said, you know, people will tell you anything about their sex lives, anything whatsoever. But if you start talking about money, they clam up and they don't know what to say. I'm very interested in the mechanics of it. It hasn't been a particularly Irish subject We write an awful lot about poverty and we write about it sometimes in a lyrical and sometimes in a savage way. But we don't tend, with honourable exceptions, to talk about putting one pound note on another pound note in the old days. Or, you know, the whole business of a bank account doesn't really enter into fiction. I think it really should. Now, you said before that you're interested as a writer to see how people can become undone or how 